0: If you want to leave your Bibles open, that'd be great. My name's Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here. It's exciting to see you tonight as we think through this topic of sex and marriage in God's Word and what that means for us. Um, This week, we start a series that we began in 2012. Um, Don't worry, we don't work that slowly. If you're new here to books through the Bible, that it takes us kind of three or four years to kind of work through them. Uh, We left that, uh, that 1 Corinthians series in chapter 6 back then, And if you want to hear uh, more of that series, you can jump online, listen to those talks there, or you can just open up your Bible, really, and read through the better version, which is what Paul had to say, which is actually God's Word, and see what he's said so far. We've called this series, from chapter 7 to 11, Life to the Glory of God. Why have we done that? That's really what this next section of 1 Corinthians is all about. How do we live life in a way that glorifies our God, in a way that makes God look great? Now... God doesn't need us to make Him look great. He is great. He, he made the universe. He made us. He is awesome. But when people who are broken like us live the way God intended us to live, well, man, it makes Him look good. What, look at what He's done with people like me. So we had to live life in a way that glorifies God. Now The picture of this church that we get, really, this, this church in Corinth, is like the second worst church in the New Testament. Lots of people get their ideas of what we do in church from what happens in 1 Corinthians. They want to say, this is the church that we don't want to follow the example of, not in all the areas anyway. There's there's the Galatian church, which Paul reckons they should just go off and do all sorts of things to themselves because they've gone way out, right? And then there's this church um, that really, they, they should be far better than they are. They claim to be wise, but they've missed the wonder of the gospel. They claim to have every spiritual gift, but they've missed out on love. Imagine that. Someone who's got every gift in the world, but not loving. What do you call them? An arrogant tool, right? This is this church. Uh, they claim to be mature, but one amongst them is sleeping with his stepmother. And I don't mean just lying in the same bed. And the rest of the church are proud. They're like, well, we're progressive. Look at us. Like, this is not good. But even amongst this mixed up notion of a church that they are, Paul still calls them part of God's church. What does that tell us? Broken, rebellious, sinful and self-focused people who are struggling to live life God's way, just like us, are still part of His church. That's a great encouragement that we need to keep putting Jesus at the center. So I want not you pray with me now that we'd be able to do that as we start this next section through the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to Your Word through Paul tonight, We ask, as we look at a topic that for many of us might bring uncertainty or fear or shame or guilt, we ask that we would see what you have us to see. We ask we would recognize the goodness of you as God and creator of all, and that we might come away from today both challenged, encouraged, comforted and changed to live our lives in light of your amazing goodness. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen. Now this topic is kind of a little bit controversial. We're going to talk about sex and what the Bible has to say about sex. And so we wanted to give you an opportunity to ask questions. There's not many people that love standing up and saying, oh, what does the Bible say on about sex? So what we're doing, we're putting a number on the screen. We'd love you to text your questions through. Please do Uh, text them through, the number up there, um, and then we'll kind of collate the ones that are similar, put them together and and spend a little bit of time afterwards, if I can be short enough in this section, explaining the things that I won't cover in the passage and answering your questions. So please, if you've got a question, text it in. Uh, There'll be more than one of you who's got it, so send it through, it'll be great. We left our last section with these words, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, it's on the screen. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. What Paul is saying to this church, this gift-filled, immature, arrogant church, that our bodies matter. What we do with our bodies can have a tremendous effect on our lives. Most people would recognise that in the world around us, wouldn't we? I mean, that's why we have all sorts of laws to stop things like assault and abuse. It's why we have things in society like marriage to say that, well, the husband and wife are, are, are not to sleep around, that, that marriage is for them and no one else is to break into this. There are laws to care for and look after what we do with our bodies. And generally, society around us would say what we do with our bodies does matter. It matters to us. But I want to ask why? Why does it matter what we do with our bodies? Why does society care so much? Well, The answer society generally gives us is that it seems to define what we can and can't do with our bodies around the idea of consent. As long as you're okay with it and it doesn't hurt anyone else, then it's good for you, right? That's that's fine. You can do whatever you want with your body. As long as you don't hurt someone, uh, it's yours to do whatever you want with. The problem with that is it doesn't work very well. The great thing about the Bible is that it seems God doesn't leave us to our own devices to be able to work out what's best for our bodies. He rightly doesn't trust us to know what we should do with them. I mean, you've only got to look at the hurt and the pain that we cause each other. Affairs, serial one-night stands, children who are missing a mum and dad, Counselors' rooms across the country are filled with people who thought they knew what to do with their bodies but have now worked out they didn't. We're not very good at it. You just look at society. But the God of history, the God who made us, He doesn't disown us. He doesn't leave us to our own devices and abandon us to work out what we should do with our bodies No matter what we've done, no matter how broken our past is, our present is, or the future might be, He lets us know we belong to Him. Thoroughly Christian concept. You belong to God. He has not abandoned you. He cares about what you do with your body. He cares about you. Our bodies, He says, they're not our own. It sounds offensive, I think, to say that, but it's true, isn't it? I didn't make my body. I I don't ultimately sustain my body. I don't choose when my heart beats. I don't choose how many days I'll live for. If I want to live for a thousand years, it won't work. My body is not my own. There is someone else ultimately in control of my body. That's the one who made them and who sustains them. Our bodies are not our own. And if you here tonight, you call Jesus your King, you're someone who, who follows Him, not only do you belong to God because He made you, but He belongs in you. He belongs in you. God is in us. At great cost to Himself, God in the person of Jesus died in our place. He took the penalty that we deserve to buy us back from the horrific consequences of running our lives without Him, doing whatever we want with our bodies. He literally bought us back from hell. And then He took up residence in us. If you are a Christian, God, by the person of His Spirit, is in you. What you do with your body matters, because you belong to God and God is in you. He sees all, He knows all, He is there. And that means you are not your own. You are not your own. We love this idea of individualism. I love it. I I, I kind of want to do whatever I want. I like being able to make my choices, what shirt I wear, uh, when I do things, what I eat when I go to a restaurant. I love being able to choose what Spotify playlist I'm listening to and be able to pick from stuff. That's, I love having choice. I like being able to be my own person. Right? And We love this idea of individualism, but I want to say individualism at its heart is idolatry. It's saying, I want to be different I want to choose my way. I want to put myself in the driver's seat. I want to call the shots on my life. It's my body. It's my choices. This is what I will do. And so we act as individuals. But friends, life isn't yours. It's God's. He made you. He invented life. He sustains you right now. Your body... It's his too. He invented that. He sustains that. Jesus died to buy it back from hell. What the Bible is saying to us here tonight is, we have no right to do whatever we want with our bodies. We don't. For they're not ours to do it with, but they are God's. They're God's. And what Paul's saying to this Corinthian church and to us is that you were made and remade to serve God with your life. You were made and remade to serve God with your life. That's the purpose of life. That is why you are here, to serve the one who loves you and made you and died for you, to bring you back from the consequences of our own actions. In other words, the best way to live is the way that the one who made you intended you to live makes sense right if the one who made me is good and loves me and he says this is the best way to live then life to the full is going to be lived when i live it in line with what he says according to his purpose and his plans but how often i just want to be an individual how often i just want to choose what i do with my body because it's mine yet i don't sustain it for one second if you're here tonight checking out jesus I want you to sit back and see just how good God's plan for us is. Listen to what Paul says and see how it rings true. It's offensive, yes. It's always offensive to be told you're not in control. But the sooner we realize that God is God and how right His ways are, the sooner we are free to enjoy life as our Maker made it to be. For if we are living life any other way, we are living a distortion, a pale reflection, a broken expression of that reality. So Paul turns to the question of life here, a question of what some see as ultimate satisfaction, ultimate purpose. What are we here for? If we were to ask the world around us, what do you live for and how do you live? I think... We get the answer well for pleasure for happiness for good for sex 1 corinthians 7 verse 1 now in response to the matters you wrote about it's good for a man not to have relations with a woman what we note as we come to this part is that paul was responding to a question that the corinthians have already asked him something that they've sent through a question it's good they've said uh, for a man not to have relations with a woman and by relations they mean sex See, part of the pride of this Corinthian church was, well, while some were over here sleeping with their stepmother and others were proud of it, going, well, look at us, we're, we're the man, we're awesome, We've, we're so progressive. Others were going, no, no, we're super spiritual. We don't have sex even in marriage. That's super, we are so cut out for God that we have no sex at all. That's us. How awesome are we? And so you've got these two extremes in the church and Paul is saying, no, no. <laughs> sex is not bad. Sex is part of God's good creation, but only when it's used as its maker intended it to be used. So how do we think about sex? What is it? How do we we understand that in in a world that God has made? Well, have a look with me at verse 2 and see this, that sex is good. Because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, some people in the church take these verses to mean that sex is just—it's merely just a way of avoiding sexual immorality. It's like a concession. You shouldn't sleep around with lots of people. You should just sleep with one. That's why you have sex, so you just stay with the one. That's your outlet. That's it. That's not the story of the Bible. God is far richer and deeper and pleasurable than that view of sex. It's just an insurance policy against sexual immorality, against misusing sex. Proverbs 5.18 Take pleasure in the wife of your youth. It doesn't say, look, just put up with it. You know, know, just go along and be like, whoa, what is this? This is annoying. It's take pleasure. Enjoy this. Relationships. We are made for relationships. That is how God has made us. In His image, He is a relational God. There is three persons within the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are made for relationship. That doesn't mean without marriage relationship, we can't be a full person. We can't enjoy life to its fullness. But for those who are married, the Bible says, enjoy the pleasure that comes from the wife of your youth. Or Solomon, listen to this, how delightful your love is, my sister, my bride. Your love is much better than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any balsam. He, Solomon is in love with his wife. In fact, that's one of the problems with Solomon he got a little bit too much in love with women and really didn't love the person, but loved the sex and loved the relationships. And so the dude had three 700 wives and 300 concubines. Like, that's wrong. It's just one man, one woman, and we'll get to that in a second. But there is a delight about this. This is good. Do you see that? The Bible says sex is good. Now, it's not an excuse in 4 verse 10 uh, that to marry your sister. Right, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the, right? How delightful is your love? My sister, my bride. No, no, no. He's saying, this is his wife and she is his sister in Christ or in, in God. They are part of God's family. So the Bible says here that sex is good. Sex is good. And here Paul says that sex as it was intended to be, the best sex, the only way sex should be used is that each man should have his own wife, And each woman should have her own husband. You want the best sex for life? (laughs) Then it's got to happen within a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. In the face of a world where everyone does everything with their bodies, Paul says no, sex is for marriage. Sex is for marriage. The ideas that float around the world, even the church, you know, try before you buy, right? It's not right. We shouldn't have sex before marriage. No, sex is only for marriage. Or the line, we're going to get married anyway. We're pretty close to getting married, so why not just have sex now? No, you're not married yet. That's not the best way to express this gift God has given. Or the line, well, God doesn't really care about that anymore. We're progressive. (laughs) Yeah, go try sleeping with your stepmother. That's what the Corinthian church was, progressive. My guess is for many of us, that's something we never want to do. And for good reason. All these things are lies that will rip you apart and make any sex you do have in the future all the cheaper for it. You hear that, don't you? The creator of the universe says, sex is good. I made it. This is how it is to be lived. So live it my way. You go stuffing around with that stuff, you're going to break it. Don't. That's why the wedding vows say when you you get married, um, I, whatever your husband's name, remember your name, right? Take you, remember your wife's name at that point, uh, to be my husband or wife, whichever sex you are, right? Okay, To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. This is my solemn vow and promise. You're promising to have and to hold one another. That's not talking about walking down the street holding hands, although you can do that too. It's saying to have one another, to be one another's, to have sex. It's a promise of physical intimacy from the beginning. It's a promise to have sex. The context of sex should always be marriage. Paul's clear. He's very clear. And marriage, according to Paul, is always between one husband and one wife. There's no such thing in in the Bible's view of same-sex marriage. Marriage is always between a husband and a wife. It's exclusively male to female, female to male. To go any other way is to claim independence from God. It's to say, look, I think I know how this thing works better. I just want to say, I don't think you do. That's not because Christians are somehow homophobic, no. Same-sex relationships are a broken form of using sex. The Bible's clear on that. Just like adultery or affairs or looking at pornography, they're all the same. They're using what God has set up for marriage to be committed to one another for life, between a husband and a wife, some other way. And you use it any way other than God created it. Let's get a break. For Christians, marriage is to be to another Christian as well. Uh, Paul's quite clear, not in this section, but at the end of the chapter in verse 39, he says, "...a wife is bound to a husband..." as long as he is living, but if a husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants. So saying that marriage is for life, and we'll get to this at the end of the, end of the, the section as well, um, that's not, again, uh, a justification to kill your spouse. Sweet, marriage's over, boom, done, I'm free. Like, no, murder's wrong too, right? Yeah? So he says, the wife is bound as long as a husband is living, but if a husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants. But then there is this word at the end, but only in the Lord. What's that saying? It's saying you need to marry someone who shares the same king as you, the same saviour as you. Do you know how hard it is to be married to someone who actually trusts in Jesus and shares the same future and to work out together as two sinners how we work this stuff out? <laughs> Imagine being married to someone who lives for a different regime totally. You love them, you care for them, there's a great relationship, they make you happy, that's great. But you go to bed every night, play, praying like crazy that they come to see who Jesus is because they know, because you know that without Jesus, they're going to hell. Just where we should be going, except that God revealed Himself to us and brought us back through nothing that we have done, but only through Jesus' death on the cross. You need to look your spouse in the eye for the rest of your life, knowing that their future is an eternity of separation from God and His goodness. The idea of missionary dating, you know what that is, right? Flirt to convert. Uh, see, see someone, become a Christian, be like, yeah, it's alright, I hear it so often, it's alright. You know, people go, yeah, yeah, it'd be great. We'll date for a while, they'll see how great Jesus is to me, and, and they'll see how much He means, and then we'll get married and everything will be happily ever after, and I'll put my foot up at the end as we do the kiss, and it means everything's great. right? That's the idea, that it'll all work well. But all that you're saying to that person is, I value my relationship with you more than my relationship with God. Because God says, I can't marry you. God's clear. I'm going to date you and go down this line of saying, hey, we should hang out more. We should do this thing called marriage. But we're going to get to a point where I've either got to pull out or I'll give up on my convictions. And nine times out of ten, it's the latter that we do. It's really, really important. Friends, if you are a Christian, marry someone who's a Christian. If you're a non-Christian, I think you understand that too, can't you? There's nothing like, you know, like you can get the plague or anything. People aren't like, whoa, crazy. It's just that there's very different worldviews. Very different worldviews. Sex is for marriage. That's what Paul's saying very, very clearly to us. But that's not all he's saying. He's saying something else about sex. He's saying that marriage is for sex marriage is for sex it's not the only reason that we marry but to have sex outside of marriage it doesn't make you married to that person right sex does not is not marriage if you've had sex with someone who who you're not married to it's not like oh i'm married to them now no there's such a thing as sexual immorality which is sex used wrongly and outside of marriage so christopher ash is a theologian a great preacher a guy in the uk who's written this mammoth book on what marriage is it's like 369 pages. It's got like two chapters on methodology. You know the type of book where you're like, he you actually works through. I'm going to make sure we do this carefully and understand what the Bible's saying. It's great. He's got a, a shorter version called Married for God that you can grab in our bookshop. Uh, that's the quicker and easier we read. Um, but Ash is great, and he's called his whole book, Marriage Sex in the Service of God. That's his summary 369 pages of, of trawling through scripture trying to understand what marriage is sex in the service of God. Let me put up on the screen a definition for you of of marriage from Ash. He says, Marriage is the voluntary sexual and public union of one man and one woman from different families. This union is patterned upon the union of God with his people, his bride, the church with his, sorry, the Christ with his church. Intrinsic to this union is God's calling to lifelong exclusive sexual faithfulness. Sex is for marriage, and marriage is for sex. Part of God's way of helping us not to have sex outside of marriage is to have sex within marriage. This is good and to be enjoyed, and that's what marriage is for, partly, to be enjoyed. And that's what Paul spends the next five verses making clear, that marriage is for sex. Look at verse 3. "'A husband should fulfil his marital responsibility to his wife.' And likewise a wife to her husband. What does that mean? You should be having sex if you're married. You need to keep doing that. That's important. Right? Now, if you're anything like I was before um, I was married, right, you probably think that marriage means sex on tap. Right? why wouldn't you? Spend so long wanting to get to you know, have sex and, and to spend time with someone to be close, and so you're like. My kind of expectation of what it would be like is, great, have sex whenever we want, morning, night, you know, whenever there's spare time, this is what we'll be doing. Oh, maybe that's just the guys, I don't know. The girls are probably thinking, right, marriage, this would be awesome, he'll bring me flowers every day, <laughs> you know, he'll just be always there, and we can call up and be like, how's your day, you know, how are you feeling about this, uh, what happened, you know, and, and the, the women are probably like, you know, we'll have sex real regularly, probably like once a month, maybe once a week, and all the guys are like, what? We live in a world that the media keeps saying that men and women constantly want to have sex. The media portrays men and women as overflowing with libido, always wanting to kind of be together, to to be ready with any drop of a hat, to have unlimited, passionate sex with one another. That's what the media portrays. And we buy that. But our world is broken. The reality is... It's not as it should be. A proper understanding of what happened with Adam and Eve at the fall when people rebelled against God and humanity were were really changed by their their rebelliousness against God. When humanity sinned, all of the world broke. That includes human sexuality. Like every other area of humanity, it's been deeply damaged and is terribly fragile. And because of that, Paul needs to tell those who are married to make sure you have sex. I bet you didn't think that was coming, did you? You don't think that, hang on a minute, Paul's spending five verses to say, make sure you have sex. Not, okay, this is the best way to use it, thinking everyone's rabbits. No, no, no. He's saying, make sure in marriage you're having sex. So many people, I think, think God is some... Killjoy. That is anti-fun, that is anti-sex. He's not. He invented it. Like, think about it. The future of the human race depends on people having sex. Alright, that's he, he's made us to procreate that way. He's not a god that's like, oh, that's you. I don't want that sort of thing. He's a god like I made this to, so you guys can enjoy one another. This is good. Adam sees Eve for the first time. What does he say? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she came out of man. What does that mean? Hubba, hubba, I'm in. Like, you are exactly what I've been looking for. All these animals, they suck. You are great. You are like my part. This is God created sex for marriage, it is good. Apart from sex, we can't continue unless, unless you go down the line of test tube babies. I don't know. I did science for uni. I don't get much pleasure out of mixing test tubes. Or like moving little bits from one bit to another. And like it's not very pleasurable. Sex is the best way to create babies by far. Like it's not fun standing in a lab coat. I'm like, oh, this is great, dear. Yes, isn't it? <laughs> God has both a sense of humour and has created sex to be used in marriage. And what we see is that sex is not firstly for your own gratification, nor for your spouses either. Sex is for the marriage. It's part of the commitment we have to God because we are serving Him. That's why Christopher Ashe calls marriage sex in the service of God. God. We're living, serving our God, glorifying Him. Remember, Paul, in this section of 1 Corinthians, is showing us how we live life to the glory of God, and how we do that with our bodies. God gives those who are married a responsibility to have sex. And He does it by giving a profound reality about marriage, a unique reality. Look at verse 4. You will not find this concept anywhere but Christianity. Uh, anywhere else in the world, scholars have looked, it is only found here, listen to verse 4, a wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. Now people at that point are like, what, that is so wrong. How can you say that a husband has the right over the wife's body? That just feels wrong to me. But it was the prevailing culture at the time. That's always been the case. Men have dominated wrongly, I think, to kind of have women at their beck and call. It's not right to kind of have that domineering view, but listen to the second half of the verse. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. That is unique. Where do we get the foundation today that's so popular of equality? The feminist movement, uh, we keep pushing to say, look, there's equality within marriage, and there is, we're both equally human. Where does it come from? It doesn't come from, from secular history. It comes from Christianity. It's the only place that this concept where the husband's body belongs to the wife and the wife's body belongs to the husband comes from. It's nowhere else. If you're someone that's sitting there going, yes, I strongly have this view that men and women are equal, I'm saying, so is God. Welcome to seeing the God of history show us how we should act. That our bodies belong in marriage to one another. Paul's already established that our bodies aren't our own. We're to serve them. We're to serve God with our bodies. But he says within marriage, the two become one flesh and your body becomes her body and her body becomes your body. Well, hang on. Just let me say it because it doesn't work for girls sitting in the room. Um, uh, your spouse's body becomes your body and your body becomes your spouse's. There you go. That's better. Um, that's the way God has made it. It's, it's crazy that we actually belong to one another. So there's sometimes when when Sarah comes out and she's like, Oh, does this does this kind of does this skirt or this dress or these pants they make me look fat? You know what I say? Don't you talk about my body like that? (laughs) That's my body, right? You can't say that about my body. Um we actually belong to one another. This is the great thing with marriage. Now, thing to note, the Bible never says husbands. Make sure you make your wife fulfill her marital duty. At no point does the Bible say, husbands, you need to be the marital duty police and say, we need more sex now. <laughs> no, I want to say no, that is not the view of the Bible. And neither does it say for women or to the wife, make your husband fulfill your marital duty. The command is to serve God within marriage. And so therefore to love and serve the other one out of service for God, not because you're getting something back Not even because it it pleases them firstly, but because it pleases God, because it shows our commitment to Him. We need to be consistently trying to please God within our marriage by bringing our spouse pleasure, no matter how much they please us. It doesn't say, um, have sex with your spouse only if they please you the way you want to be pleased. It says, have sex because God has set it up this way if you are married. Sex is not to be used within marriage as a bargaining chip. You know, oh, um, unless you give me sex, I'll look at porn or I might have an affair. That's just wrong and destructive. Like, we should never do that. And then and, and it some sort of mechanical response. All the other way around. Um, the other person is saying, look, I'll only give you sex when, the, when you clean the house, when you put your clothes away, when you cook me dinners and you bring me flowers once a week. Then you'll get sex if you're lucky. No, your body is not your own. Marriage is to be serving one another as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, not claiming his own rights, but wanting desperately to serve his father by loving the church. So it is in marriage. We're to be loving one another, not because of what we get back, not because that person is lovable, because Jesus died for you and you made a commitment to love and serve for them until the day you die. Our bodies belong to one another in marriage. Marriage is about giving yourselves to one another in the service of God. And so Paul says that that sex within marriage should be regular. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another sexually, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul says this as a concession, He's saying the only concession there is to regular sex is if you're going to stop to pray for a while because you want to kind of, in the same way that fasting reminds you when you're hungry to pray, so not having sex with your wife will remind you to pray as well because apparently guys think about sex every eight seconds. I don't know if that's true, but there you go. Um, And so it actually is a way he's saying that, look, if you're actually going to stop as a concession, if you're not going to have regular sex together, then make sure it's only for prayer and then quickly come back together again. The Bible's expectation is we need to work hard on having sex within marriage. I bet you that's not what you thought either. They have this view of marriage that it's all great and rosy and butterflies. You know, it's hard work. Paul was saying your bodies belong to one another and that means regular sex. There'd been those amongst them, I imagine here what he's saying, is that who found pride in not having sex, in abstaining. Paul says... No, have sex. Christian marriages should be full of sex or full of prayer or both. I can't see where there's any space for anything else. Now, I want to say here, we need to make sure within sex that we aren't making the other partner beg for it. Uh, This morning, which will be the the talk that's probably online, um, I read a a section, which I won't read now, of what a sexless marriage feels like uh, from a man who'd been faithful to his wife, hadn't had sex in 19 years. And he kind of talked through what it was like. Um, Check that out or I can give it to you later if you're interested. But Paul then talks here about what marriage is and that marriage is for life. He'll touch on singleness, but we'll come back to that next week. If you're like, whoa, this is all about marriage. You're like, yeah, that's what Paul's talking about. Uh, Next week, he'll talk about how singleness fits in the church. But this is really helpful for us to understand what marriage is. And Paul says so clearly, marriage is for life. Look at verse 10. I command the married, not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to leave a husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to a husband. And a husband is not to leave his wife. You go, what about, Paul says, nah. There's nothing here. There's no other exceptions. It's for life. This is helpful for us to hear because I think the culture around us says, oh, you know, you get married for a bit, then you get divorced. That's fine. It didn't really work out. Oh, well, you move on. Hope you don't lose too much of your house. Right? That's how it works. But no, God is saying that marriage is far deeper than that, far more gluing than that. It needs to be for life. And there's no exception here. There's no exception. If you do split up for some reason, Paul expects that you remain unmarried or be reconciled that you actually wait and try and work stuff out and think through that. There's something right about that, isn't there? Now Jesus does give one exception. In Matthew 5, he holds that if someone in that married marriage has sex outside of marriage, they so distort what marriage is and that lifelong faithful sexual faithfulness to one another. They so distort that, that the marriage is basically dissolved at that point, that it's broken. But I want us to hear the gravity of what Paul's saying here. Marriage is for life. So for those of you that are married, work hard on your marriages. We need to. Every couple that we marry here at Auckland EV and Uni Church, we say must see a counsellor outside of us. We still go through the kind of biblical grounding of marriage and what that is, we do a couple of sessions and talk through that stuff. Then we want you to go see a counselor who's a outside of church counselor. It actually when you know there's no huge issues going on in in your relationship to see a positive chance of chatting through the whole how we communicate well and and seeing a counselor so that when marriage issues come up, and they will not heard of one person married ever who's had no issues. And if they say we've got no issues, I go, Yeah, you're lying. Like you're two sinners, come on. As if you can, no, it's, it's hard. Mates that I've, like, I've, we've been married, Sarah and I, 15 years now. And other people that have been married around the same time, I, I chat to them and I talk through the hardships of what it's like. Hardships of having children and when you're just tired and you don't know what way's up, or you don't know what way the baby's up either. And it's just, you think it's hard. So we need to go and actually get help. We need to get help and talk to someone who can help us work through that. I say that for another reason as well. It's so easy to idolise the other side of the fence. To stand and go, but they've got it all. Those married people, they can have sex and that's great. Wish I could have sex. When inside, half the heads of the people who are married are going, oh, I've got those single people, free to do whatever they want. They don't have to kind of worry about what the other person's doing. They get to, you know, choose what they want to do. Man, they don't even have to have sex every week. I kid you not. And it was so easy for us both to be on the other side of the fence going oh i'd be better if i was just married or single friends don't idolize sex don't idolize marriage the greatest human who ever lived on the face of the planet had neither jesus and he was still a few, full human he still lived a full life in fact he is the model of life i want us to correct our view is it marriage that you idolize Is it singleness? Is it the feeling of happiness that comes from a relationship? Friends, the only thing that will satisfy us is finding our contentment in Jesus. He's the only one that can bear that weight. He's the only one that never lets me down. I'm always going to let Sarah down. She's called to love me, not because I'm lovable, not because I always do the right thing, but because she committed to love me to her God. And she loves her God more than me. And I thank God for that. So don't idolize marriage. Now, I want to give you six quick things that can get in the way of a good marriage. I'm going to run through them quickly. They might be helpful. They might not. Let me tell you one. Number one, pride. If you are married, pride can get in the way of just good conversations about sex. We, we don't talk about it. We have these little innuendos and don't actually say what our issues are or how much we'd like to have sex or what feels good or what doesn't. You need to talk. I keep reminding myself, you know, Sarah's not a mind reader. She can't know what's going on inside my head, but I expect her to. (laughs) Talk, speak, swallow your pride and say, can we have a chat about sex at some point? That's fine. Do that. Um, Secondly, porn. Porn is destructive to marriage. Porn gives you really like an insecurity in your life and a dissatisfaction about reality. You think that's what sex is? It's not. The secular world is now cottoning on to the fact that porn is really not good for you. They're saying, don't do it. If you do it just a bit, but not too much, it's going to stuff you up. It's bad. It does create huge dissatisfaction with your spouse or spouse-to-be. If you're not married to them, don't do it. Don't do stuff that you should do when you're married to someone who's not, even if it's just pixels on a screen or pictures in a book or images in your mind. thirdly, past wounds. Depending on what stats you use, between 23% to 33% of women have been sexually abused at some point in their life. That means for many of us, there is a past that hurts. That's okay to hurt. And I want to say, make sure you share your sexual history with your partner-to-be. Don't hold back until you're married. Actually share that, whether it's what you have done with others or what others have done to you. It's important to have that shared. You are sharing one another's body. And so you need to speak about that. You need to be honest. And if you can't be honest before marriage, I don't know how you're going to be afterwards. So talk through those past wounds. Uh, Fourthly, poor relationships. They stuff sex. Most of the time, the solution that sex therapists give when you go to sex therapy to work out why sex isn't working is not technique, but communication. How to speak, how to talk with one another about what's going on. Uh, communicating how you're going is, is key. Do you feel loved by me? It's a great question for husbands to love their wives. Um, wives to ask their husbands from Ephesians 5, do you feel like I respect you? Do you feel respected by me? Actually communicate and talk through what's going on. Being able to say, look, I'm really not up to it tonight. I'd love to serve you, but I'm just not up to it. It's fine and good. And for the other partner to go, that's cool. I I want you to be be comfortable. One another are trying to serve each other. You need to talk. Fourthly, poor hygiene. Poor hygiene. Seriously, some people aren't getting any sex in their marriage because they stink. I, I kid you not. Uh, this actually might be an issue if you're dating. Uh, guys, don't think about this. We have a smell and it reeks. Like, deodorant is good. Use it. It's a gift from God. Uh, <laughs> all the women in the room will thank you for wearing it. I, and I kid you not. You seriously, write that down. It's a take-home. Um, it's just one it's, of the things that, that we actually need to be on top of and make sure we're sorting out. that We don't smell. It's like, hey, hey, John, Like, yeah, that's bad. I'll say the last one and it's quite simple, it's poor security. Uh, If you are married, then thinking through contraception is something that's helpful. Make sure you're choosing a contraceptive that doesn't abort, uh, that has the effect of stopping implantation or the effect of stopping fertilisation as its main way of operating. Um, Chat to a GP or you can chat with me about some of those later. Um, uh, Or actually, there are some people that are into attachment parenting which I'm not saying is wrong, but it's the idea that you have your kids around you, you co-sleep with them, they're there all the time. I'm not hassling attachment parenting, but I do want to say, if you're going to do that with kids, make sure you work out how you can have sex, because it's not really that good having sex with a five-year-old in your bed. That's awkward, and it's not right. <laughs> uh, and so you actually need to think through how that will work. Put a lock on your door and lock it. It's great to show your children that your priority is your spouse. That's the best gift we can give for our kids sex is god's gift to marriage it's the way that godly spouses are to act and it glorifies him and the thing we must remember is that we must not idolize sex or marriage to serve god with our body in whatever situation we're in that's what we're called to do we think oh but it would be so much better if that was there it would be so much better if i lived wholeheartedly for jesus wouldn't it And served him with my whole life. And found my satisfaction, not in some short-lived pleasure, but in an eternity. And seeing more people come to know Jesus. And seeing others deepened in him. And knowing him more and more and more. That surely is far better than any momentary pleasure. However good that is. Don't idolise sex. And as we think through this topic, if it brings up for you guilt and shame. I'm going to say two things. Number one, repent might be some of you now that need to do some repenting tonight. Do that. Speak to your God and say, I need to say sorry for the way I'm acting. If you aren't married and you're having sex, and by that I mean you're doing anything with your boyfriend or girlfriend that you wouldn't do with your sister. There's a good line for you. Uh, Paul says, treat younger women as sisters. Then repent. Stop. Stop going down the road that you can't continue down until you're married. Stop robbing your marriage from the way God has set sex up to be good. Love your sister and your brother in that way and stop. Repent. Confess your sins to God and share them with someone else. Satan's greatest victory is often to say, You can't tell them. If they find out that you've done this sin, well, they'll know you're a sinner and the world will be on your shoulders and it'll be awful. I'm like, Surprise, surprise, Satan. We're all sinners. We've all stuffed up. We've all rejected God at some point in our life, but Jesus has forgiven me, so shut up and get back to hell. Seriously, confess to a brother or sister. Share how you're going. Pray together. And if you're the brother or sister they confess to, don't go, oh, I can't believe you did that. You're like, yeah, because you're, you're not a sinner as well. Be like, man, it's not something I've necessarily struggled with, but I want to pray for you in this. What would be helpful? Share. If, if you're dating, have someone that you actually are accountable with, who will ask you, what are your boundaries? Here's a key question, write this down. What are your boundaries? Ask that question and then say, when was the last time that you crossed them? And actually ask that of one another. Don't, don't do it as a weird, like the, the boundary police, but out of love and concern for one another. So many couples that I speak to have no one who's asking those questions. That's a good question with porn. The, the question I ask, guys, when I catch up, if you ever caught up with me, you'll know I ask this almost every time, not how are you going with purity, but when was the last time you looked at porn? Because it's, it's just so, so in our faces everywhere. And we can just talk about it and go, yep, yeah, it was here, and we can pray that it won't happen again and talk through stopping that area. Confess to God and to someone that you walk with. And the second thing we need to do is to trust in the forgiveness of Jesus. Look to the cross, where Paul says in Colossians, our sins were nailed to the tree. When Satan whispers, it's too much, you've gone too far, you can't turn back, say three words to him. Jesus said, it is finished. My sin has been paid for. I have nothing to face before God because it has been exhausted in Jesus. And so run to him. Thank him for his forgiveness. Don't wallow in your guilt. Confess, share with others. So you might actually put Jesus first and serve him with your body. But don't let Satan win that battle. Put Jesus at the front of your life and serve him. Well, let's spend some time in questions. Um, There you go. That's quick, quick. We'll see how we go here. What if two people get married and are not sexually satisfied with one another? What if it's not fun? I want to say that's the first year of marriage, at least. No, no, I kid you not. I want to lower everyone's expectation of, of what sex is like when you get married. Like, It'll be great. Everyone gets on these awesome honeymoon destinations, thinks they'll be like, sitting back, having the best sex ever. Sex sucks. It takes time, like anything else. Look, you've got to practice it. And hopefully, we've all been out of practice. Right? And so when, when we get married, it's going to be like learning and exploring and encouraging. And uh, Sex, when you get married, is hard. If you're not sexually satisfied, I think... You need to think, number one, my goal isn't to be sexually satisfied. My goal as a marriage partner is to sexually satisfy the other, because I'm serving my God. Remember, sex is for marriage, and we serve God. And so I want to say, work through what that is. If there are things that are hurting or things that aren't, go and talk to a GP. Tell your your spouse what's going on, and and work through that together. Um, There's a reality. Okay, next question. Uh, what's God's view on using contraception? Yeah, I said that briefly already. Um, I think it's fine. I think it's not a problem at all. Some people quote the passage where, um, who was it? Some remember his name. Uh, he was a kinsman, redeemer. He spilled his semen on the floor. Everyone's like, ah, oh, that's masturbation and that's wrong. And you shouldn't, you should always have sex in order to have kids. No, I think you see the Bible keep talking through that sex is for pleasure as well. Yes, it's for making babies, but it's for pleasure too. And I think we can be wise we, as we use contraception, although we want to use contraceptives that don't abort children, that don't abort fertilized embryos. Um, and so work through what, what that is so, uh, with your GP. Next question. Uh, in response to the test comments, what does the Bible say about IVF? Uh, it's a painful process to find out you cannot procreate naturally as God designed. Is it wrong to use science to assist having babies? Yeah, great question. Uh, And I never want to say that uh, an IVF child is somehow not right or not good. So Please forgive me if that's come across in any way in that question. I think IVF is a a fine uh, way, if you can't have babies normally, uh, to be able to conceive. Um, There are some things you need to think through with IVF, just like contraception. If you fertilise eight embryo, that means you need to implant eight embryo, because I would say that from the fertilisation, someone is a child. Uh, And so that means you've got to be prepared to have eight kids. That might be the case. Um, and so, yeah, think through that. Uh, let, let the people know if you're going through IVF that you are a Christian and these are like your parameters. Share with others. It's a really hard process. Um, I, my parents tried IVF after me. They couldn't have any more kids after me. It's my only child. Not explain half the problems. Um, <laughs> but I remember sitting on my mum's lap and asking why I didn't have any more children and her just bursting into tears, uh, warning from the depth of her heart to have more kids. And why I didn't have a brother or a sister. Uh, there's a huge pain. And if you're going through that, tell someone so they can walk with you. Uh, tell someone in your connect group and, and, and share that together because it is hurtful and it's hard. And there's something about it that does hit at the core, especially of women, of, of, of who you are as a, as a child carrying possibility. Uh, it does seem to affect women hugely. Um, so yeah, happy to talk through more of that later if you've got more questions on that. Uh, If your parents conceived you outside of marriage, did God not want you to be born? Um, Or did he want them to have sex outside of marriage? Here's the thing. God uses all sorts sorts of wrong and broken circumstances to bring about his plans and purposes. You want a clear example of that? Look to the cross. It was his plan from the beginning that Jesus would come and die in our place. Was that right? No. Who is responsible? Well, we are those who put him there. God used the greatest travesty in the world, the greatest wrong in the world, to bring about His plans and purposes without being responsible for that wrong. Uh, The fact is, God doesn't give us what we deserve so often. Uh, And so, uh, there's no point to think, oh, God didn't want you to be born. No, He did. You're here. Uh, God's plans are true and nothing can thwart them. Um, All I just say is, your parents made a decision that's wrong. But thank God you're here. Uh, what do I do if my current girlfriend or boyfriend is not Christian? Do I break up with them? How? <laughs> I want to say at this point, this is hard, right? I, I, I could just go, well, you say we need to break up, I'm a Christian, right? That's, but you love this person. You, you, you're thinking there's so many things and you might look at them and go, I don't know if I'll get another one as good as them, right? And, and there's this What you need to think is, who do I serve? I serve my God and I know I can't marry this person if I'm going to serve my God. So I can't see I'll have a life that is honouring to God if I continue in this relationship. And the best thing I can do for that person is to say, God comes before you. Now, if that feels offensive to you, I want to ask, do you know who God is? Have you recognised He's the King of your life and the King of this world? We need to put Him first. We need to be serious about that with one another. Not just being like, you don't need to do this. But understanding, it's hard to say that. It's hard to do it in a way that communicates to them that you don't think that the non-Christian is some second-class citizen. But that this person that you're dating, uh, you love them and care for them. And that's why you need to say, Jesus is most important to me. I am not loving you if I stay with you. I'm saying you are more important to me than my God. I'm leading you away from God rather than saying No. I need to put God first. We cannot continue like this. Uh, We need to be friends. And invite them to church. Don't go, oh, I'll invite them to church first. Maybe I'll become a Christian and then I'll be all right. No. I think you actually need to sit down and say to them, look, I do care for you deeply, but I actually can't marry you. And for me to stay with you as your boyfriend or girlfriend is actually hurting you. And it's actually not loving to you because really I'm showing you something wrong about my God and something wrong about what I'm intending to do in the future. I, I can't marry you. And so, as hard as this is, we need to split up. And I'm sorry, but I love you to come to church and meet Jesus. And I think the trick there is, uh, internally, you want them to come to know Jesus anyway. But the best thing you can do to see them come to know Jesus is to say, actually, come to church and chat to someone else over there and get to know them and talk with Jesus stuff about them. Don't kid yourself that you can meet up one-on-one and, no, we're not dating anymore. You're just continuing. Uh, get someone else to do that. Be their friend, yes, but... Yeah, make that clear. Um, what if you're in an abusive or severely dysfunctional marriage? Are you allowed to divorce them? Um, first thing to say is that sucks, if that's the reality. And it is the reality of many marriages. I've, uh, I've got some friends that I know who are great Christian people, but he was verbally abusive to his wife. They're both Christians. Uh, they both decided the best thing for them to serve God was to separate because they just couldn't deal with his anger. And we go, man, just deal with your anger, right? But for him, that was just, he, he was trying, but it just wasn't working. He wasn't getting anywhere. And so they separated for life. Now, maybe one day his anger will be sorted and maybe she could forgive him, but I doubt it. The um, Bible's saying marriage is for life. Uh, that couple's son came to me and said, it's not fair that mum can't remarry. And I said, oh, I understand that that's, that's hard and horrible, but... She made a promise to have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. To love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. Marriage is more than getting gratification from the other. Marriage is serving our God. And He says this is right. His way is right. What if God at one point does bring them back? How great that would be. If you're in an abusive marriage where there's physical abuse, get out right now. If that is you tonight, in uh, whatever way, come talk with me and we'll sort something out where you can go that's that's safe. But unless there's been sexual immorality, it seems to be the only exception in the Bible. Then I don't think divorce is ever godly or right. Uh, last question: What do we do if we realise God's design for sex and marriage now, but in the past we've already sinned in this area? Is it too late? I want to say you praise God. You say, thank you so much for showing me the error of my ways and not letting me continue in that, to destroy myself and to destroy the body that you've given me to serve you in and to serve my future spouse in. If you're in that position, you, you go and tell a friend, someone who's a Christian who will stand by you and help you, and you stop having sex with that person. Or if it's been in the past, then you're not having sex anymore. You actually come to God and do those two things that I said. You repent. You say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for not treating you, God, as I should have. You apologize to that person for not treating them as you should have with them. But it's not too late. Yeah, there are earthly ramifications. Um, There are parts of of the future that will have brokenness in them. But hey, all our future is broken. What you do is you thank God that He's allowed you to see that. You confess it to Him. You confess it to a friend. And then you sit in His forgiveness and look to His Son who's paid the price for all our brokenness and sin and allows us to be called God's children, allows us to have a certain hope and a certain future where where everything will be perfect and brokenness is no more. And we have made fully like Christ. How I long for that day.